Hi, I'm Tobe in Mozambique. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me this morning to share a Bible reading with you. So today I'm going to read from Luke chapter 6, uh, from verse 39 up until 49. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me, and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Jonathan. If we haven't met yet, uh, but it's good to see you this morning. It's my privilege to open uh, God's Word for us today from the Gospel of Luke. Now, I know there's some teachers in this room. I'm looking at you, or former teachers. I know who you are. And uh, I, I think it's very good that you're here this morning. Uh, but all of us have been learning to some degree uh, because this message has everything to do with what it means to be a student of Jesus. Now, when I was a kid, I remember that I had no concept for teachers having a life outside of school. So as far as I was concerned, they hung them up in the closet at the end of the day and they pulled them back out when you, when you showed up. But uh, we don't really think about it. And, and, and now being an adult, I know some teachers. I know just how valuable uh, being able to switch off and go home <laughs> at the end of the day is to them. Uh, but Jesus is a different kind of teacher. When I was in Burke, I remember I'd just gone through all these uh, four years of training and, and preparation. I had spent some time, uh, you know, I think I'd accumulated three degrees by the end of it. And uh, after these three degrees, I get out to Burke and I remember thinking, I can't just sit and read out my theology notes to these people. Uh, they're just operating on, on a, you know, I was taught a whole bunch of jargon and terminology that wasn't really, really relevant. And so as I'm thinking how to translate this, and I'm looking around, and sometimes I would get lonely, and I would think, you know, 
man, if I could just sort of have my teacher with me, if I could just sort of ask my old professor, how would you handle this situation? How would you handle that situation? What a comfort that would have been. But the good news is that when we become a student of Jesus, we never are sent home. He is constantly, always, always teaching us. Uh, the way of salvation we'll see today is by becoming a learner or a student of Jesus Christ. That is the path of the way to salvation. Jesus is going to talk about this idea of being a student or a learner. We use the term disciple mostly because Nowadays, when we talk about student, we often uh, are thinking about sitting at a desk with, with a writing implement and a teacher at the front with the whiteboard, and we get sort of too constrained with that idea of student. But that's what a disciple was. It was a pupil. It was a learner. And we're going to try to answer the question, what makes someone a disciple? And conversely, what makes somebody a hypocrite? How are they distinguished? There's a lot of people who've left the church because they say, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. A lot of us, whether you're in a church or out of a church, would rather be called a lot of things than a hypocrite. <laughs> One of the worst things we feel we can say to someone is, you're being hypocritical. We might accept being told we're bad at this or we're bad at that or whatnot, but to be called a hypocrite is very, very difficult. But Jesus is going to tease out the difference between a genuine and a false disciple in Luke chapter 6, verse 39 to 49. So in this section, he's teaching us about the nature of genuine discipleship for those who would seek to follow him. And specifically, and if you really latch on to anything, this is what I want you to latch on to. Jesus is teaching us that genuine discipleship is distinguished not by profession, merely, not just by what you say, but by transformation. So another way of putting it, we could say that all who would pledge their allegiance to Jesus in this upside-down kingdom of God that he's bringing will be marked by a change from the inside. And that change, which can be difficult to distinguish from the surface, but which is still comprehensive. James Edwards put it this way, all discipleship consists foremost and forever in coming to Jesus, being with him. Only in relationship with Jesus as Lord do disciples hear him and learn his way. And within this relationship, they do his will or better. Like the foregoing image of the fruit tree, they allow Jesus to bear fruit through them. This is the true formula for a saving faith. There's another way of saying that the way of salvation is by becoming a learner or a student of Jesus. It's also true that the formula for a strong and vibrant church, coming to Jesus for, in evangelism, hearing his word, his preaching, and exposition, learning, and doing his will in catechesis. For us personally as individual disciples and for us collectively as, as the church, as those gathered in the name of Christ, our relationship our transformation into the likeness of Christ is the fruit of our faith. Now, faith is what makes us distinctive. Now, there's a couple types of students. I was a student in my undergrad who 
pulled his first failing grade. I somehow managed to get through all of primary school and high secondary school without failing a class. I failed my first class at uni in undergrad. It was in music appreciation. It had nothing to do with the fact that I didn't like music. I love music. Uh, it didn't have to do with the fact that I had to perform music. That wasn't part of it at all. It had everything to do with the fact that the class was at 8 a.m. and I couldn't be bothered to get out of bed and get into class on time. And this particular lecturer had a what was a very right and good philosophy. Uh, if you didn't attend a certain number of classes, you automatically failed. So I automatically failed music appreciation. Uh, modern political philosophy, fantastic. I could do great. Music, couldn't do it. I had to retake the class. But something changed when I got to seminary. I was, I was engaged. And it was because I didn't just see this as something that was something that would round off my life. The things that I was learning were my life. I was preparing to go into ministry. I was preparing to preach and teach the gospel. And so I knew that everything that I was being taught would be something that I would need to use in the future. On top of that, I was paying a cost personally for it. My parents weren't just fitting the bill like they were for my undergrad education. There's two types of students. Jesus is going to show that being a disciple is much more like me in seminary than it was like me in undergrad. Some contextual features of this, of this passage um, before we get to... Uh, before we get to the outline. First of all, Jesus is addressing a crowd that is mixed. It's, it's, it, his audience uh, are fill, full of apostles that Jesus has chosen to be his envoys and messengers. There's disciples there, and then there's potential disciples, and it's a mixed group. It's people from, from all over Judea, people from non-Jewish areas, from the coastal regions as well. And Jesus, what he's doing in this, he's, he's taking a crowd who came to receive something from him, and he's leaving them thinking about their commitment to him. You see, Jesus understands that they came to hear and to be healed, but he's going to, to finish his message with, with a series of probing pictures that cause them to reflect on how much do they want to be attached to him. So this is the audience. The second contextual feature to note is that this teaching is a teaching of wisdom. Jesus is trying to distinguish two paths here, and his, his imagery and his framework is a very common in wisdom literature. Thirdly, Jesus, I believe, is speaking in fulfillment. His words link very closely with the images that we find in Isaiah chapter 28 when God is rebuking the rulers, the leaders of his people and describing what will happen when he visits them. Fourthly, there's a reversal that is taking place uh, in this whole Sermon on the Plain. Jesus, as we know from Luke's Gospel, there's been, there's been this lengthy introduction to kind of set the scene, and then in Capernaum, Jesus shows up and he announces, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, I've come to preach good news, and he puts all of this forward, and then we see him doing miracle after miracle after miracle, demonstrating that he's the Messiah. And then we come to Luke chapter uh, 6 in the Sermon on the Plain, and Jesus here is now teaching about this kingdom that he is bringing. And we've seen it's this upside-down, topsy-turvy, not-what-you-think-it-is type kingdom. We saw this with the blessings and the woes. Jesus looked at the people who were poor, the people who were mourning, the people who were hated and persecuted, and he said, God's blessing is on you. 
That's not what we would expect. He then later on went to teach about what it means to love in the kingdom of God. And he, he said to love in the way that God loves is a love that embraces enemies. It's a love that gives without expectation of return. In fact, as he's unpacking this love, we'll just recap a little bit. He puts this stark contrast between sinners who love in the way the world does and disciples who love in the way the Father does. A sinner reinforces their allies, but a disciple embraces their opponents. A sinner pursues their own agendas, whereas a disciple will submit to others' limitations. To love in the world means to protect your own interests, whereas to love in the kingdom that Jesus brings means to surrender my resources. And you can see as we go down the list, in the world, we defend our honor. In the kingdom, we honor others above ourselves. In the world, we secure our own well-being, whereas in the kingdom, we supply for the well-being of another. In the world, we demand our vindication. In the kingdom, we release our debtors. In the world, we serve our own desires, whereas in the kingdom, we sacrifice our desires. Again, totally different than what we expect and operate with. So it's not surprising here, as we look at the context of the conclusion to this Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus hints that, the, that just like this upside-down kingdom that they inhabit, his disciples are going to be distinguished in ways that perhaps are not what we would expect. In other words, Jesus is going to show that somebody's a disciple not just because they say they're a disciple, because they listen to Hope 103.2, because they have the Christian bumper sticker, because they put Bible verse on their Instagram, and because they said they've been to Hillsong once or twice. These things do not make a disciple. It's something deeper. It's something harder to see. And finally, the last feature of these, uh, these verses that you need to understand is they're, they're practical. The, Jesus is, is giving us language here that is meant to be accessible. It's not meant to be distant. And, and how, do I, how, do I, how do I get this? It's supposed to be real, actionable, accessible information. So with all of that by way of introduction, here's where we're going today. Uh, Jesus in this finished to his Sermon on the Plain, he is presenting uh, parabolic wisdom about discipleship. It's, it, it feels like a parable. It's an image from everyday life that's used to teach a greater truth about the kingdom of God. And he unfolds this wisdom as a parable in three couplets or pairs where each pair presents a contrast, and within that contrast will be marked a difference between true and false disciples, between the genuine and the hypocrite. So here's the three contrasting pairs. There's two guides, there's two trees, and there's two builders. Two guides, two trees, and two builders. And in the first section with these two guides, Jesus is going to show the distinguishing mark of clarity among his disciples. And he's really probing his disciples with the question of, where are you going? Who are you following? And second, with the two trees, he's going to note the distinguishing mark of the disciple there is consistency. And here he's going to probe his hearers with the question of what's growing inside you? What fruit are you bearing? What's happening in your soul that's coming out in your life? 
And in the last section, Jesus is going to define the distinguishing mark of his disciples as integrity, where he's going to probe the question of how do you know it will last? How do we know? How do we know that this life, this building will survive and persevere? To summarize this way, Jesus wants us to know that his disciples are going to be those whose response results in a wholehearted transformation. A wholehearted transformation. In other words, Jesus isn't looking for people to simply pass on his ideas. He's looking to pass on his identity in people. Do you catch the difference? Jesus isn't calling a church to be gathered together so that they can just continue repeating the Christian doctrines. Jesus is gathering the church together so that he is replicating himself in life upon life upon life, recreating us, restoring us into the image of God. And so we'll see that if we truly learn from Jesus, then we will become like him. On the other hand, others may profess Jesus, but their commitment is compromised by ignoring a hidden flaw. So this is how Jesus wants to end his message. You can see it's, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. It is not something that is necessarily even comfortable, but it's designed to help us evaluate our commitment to Christ and is, and is designed to help us to be able to distinguish between true and false disciples. With that, let's pray. God, would you encourage us this morning from your word to know you better, to love you sincerely. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your word is living and active. Lord, we are your people. Would you shape us for your good pleasure? In your name, amen. So Jesus begins with two guides, verses 39 to 42. And again, the, the distinction of the, the distincting, distinguishing mark of a disciple here is a disciple can see. 39, he also told them this parable, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus begins with this understanding that everyone is being guided by someone or something. And he poses that obvious question, can the blind lead the blind? Of course not. If I pulled two of you up on stage and I blindfolded both of you and I told one, grab the hand of the other and say, I'm going to take you into the path of safety and light. <laughs> We'd all start laughing. The point is, neither can see. And yet one presumes to be the guide. This carries over into the illustration, verses 41 to 42, of the person who has obstructed vision trying to help the other person see better. Jesus creates a very comical scenario here. We've all had something in our eye from time to time. 
And whether it's an eyelash or a speck of dust, often you either go to a mirror or you go to a friend or somebody nearby and you say, I feel like I have something in my eye. Can you, can you see where it is? And you sort of, you, you peer over, you pull your eyelash down and they look, you say, oh, I think it's over there. And they sort of, sometimes if you know them really well enough, you say, can you just sort of get that out? And they, they get it out for you. Now, Jesus says, imagine somebody sees a little piece of wood and they say, I'm going to get that piece of wood out, but... In reality, they have this load-bearing beam sticking out from their eye. It's a total caricature. And the point is, how ridiculous is that? It's absolutely preposterous to be, to be thinking that you can help somebody else see when, through this little speck when you've got this massive, massive plank in your own eye. Jesus calls them a hypocrite. Now, what does he mean by a hypocrite? A hypocrite is, it was an acting term in those days. It meant, it meant to wear another face on top. And so the idea was that the external face was different from the face beneath. So you were, we use the phrase two-faced for this. And so the person is a hypocrite because externally they're presenting themselves like they have the ability to heal. They have the ability to see. Oh, let me clarify this for you, they say. When in reality, the picture that they have is completely muddled. They don't see things clearly at all. And yet they presume to be the one who helps the person with obstructed vision actually see. The solution, Jesus says, is introspection and Gaining sight for yourself must precede instruction and helping others to see. This is the mark of genuine discipleship. And Jesus, who is the great teacher, he shows plainly that the student will actually become like the teacher, the good student. In other words, Jesus is saying, those who are really learning from him start to become like him. They start to resemble him. So what we mean is Jesus says that when we have seen him rightly, our vision is restored and we're able to see ourselves correctly. What does it mean to see? It means to have an accurate understanding of who you are before God and, a, and an accurate understanding of God in Christ. It means to recognize Jesus as God in flesh, as the eternal word dwelling among us. As John would have testified to him, Jesus is the faithful and true witness, the one who speaks and acts for God perfectly, who disseminates truth that is of divine origin, not of earthly origin. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the whole premise is built on, on wisdom gathered from below, but Jesus comes to impart to us wisdom and knowledge directly from heaven. Yes, there's some things we can know from the created order, but Jesus reveals truth at its core from God himself. And so the idea is, once you've let Jesus clear up your own vision, then you're able to go help others see. Notice the problem is not the desire to help somebody else see, verse 42. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for saying, who, do you, who are you to think that you can help somebody else see? No, he just says, 
Don't try to help somebody else see when you don't actually see for yourself. That's the blind leading the blind. And so it begs the question for us, who, who are we looking to for our sight? Who are we looking to for understanding? Who are we looking to to show us and to teach us? Notice that the, the premise here is that everyone is learning something from someone. Everyone's following somebody. If your view of the world is shaped primarily by Kim Kardashian, you're going to have a certain view of the world. If your view of the world is shaped by your favorite pop athlete or by a local news reporter or, or by your favorite fiction author, they are constructing a framework through which you are, are to see things. But Paul would say that before, before we knew Christ, before we came to Christ, we had a certain way of looking at the world. But now that we know Christ, we don't look at the world. We don't look at anybody the same way we used to. We don't even look at Christ the same way we used to. Because we can now see. So, in terms of discipleship, and if we get really practical, don't follow somebody just because they say they're a pastor. Don't follow somebody just because they claim to know a way because they say this is, trust me, I know where we're going. <laughs> First ask, can they see? Do they see Jesus and do they show me Jesus? Paul says that the eyes of the world have been blinded by Satan so that we cannot behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. We're blind to the glory of God, which is there in Jesus. But when we come to Christ, when the light of Christ shines on us, then we can see. And Paul is so captivated by this metaphor that he can actually depict the entirety of the Christian life as an, as an eternal gazing or looking upon Jesus. And in this eternal looking upon Jesus, we are transformed constantly in the process. But you're not a disciple if you can't see. That's the first piece of wisdom. The second piece of wisdom is that a genuine disciple is distinguished or marked by their consistent reflection of Jesus's life and nature within. In other words, the byproduct of one's life will correlate to the quality and the kind of the treasure of that life. And Jesus finishes by pointing out that our speech is a direct line to the things that our heart loves. Jesus says, no tree bears good fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. So a good man brings good things out of the good stored up. Literally, it's treasured. The good man brings good things out of the good treasured in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil treasured or stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So if Jesus' first pair of images was meant to get us to reflect on where we're looking, this pair of images is get us to reflect on what's happening inside of us. What is, what is being produced within us? 
And in classic two paths wisdom imagery, Jesus says there's two trees. Now, if you took me to, and I had this experience, I was up in Bilpin, uh, you know, a few years ago, and, and they took us out to the orchard and we were looking at the apple trees and they said, and I just walked and I thought, oh, look at, these are, these are all apple trees. And then as they walked us by, they said, well, actually, no, that's not an apple tree. They were growing something else in that little particular subsection. That's a pear tree. Oh, but if I stood back from a distance, I could look at that and say, well, they're, they're all trees. And the assumption was, I'm at an apple orchard. This is an apple tree. You can walk into a church on a given Sunday and look around and say, oh, look, here. It's all Christians. We're all in a church. These are all apple trees. We're all in the apple orchard. But it's only when you actually get up and you pull the fruit off the tree and you take a bite and you say, oh, this is, this tastes like an apple. It's good. Jesus is pointing out that there is a quality difference between genuine and false disciples. That when we partake of their life, that when you share in the life of a genuine disciple, there, there ought to be some sort of re- reminder, taste, savoring of the life of Jesus himself. Conversely, if you get up close to the life of another and, and, and you begin to partake of their life and you, something smells rotten here. There, there, there's, there, there's something that's, this, this is not Jesus here. That's not good. But then he moves from a quality difference between bad fruit and good fruit to, to a difference of kind. He says, look, at the end of the day, really, only Fig trees will produce figs. You can't look at a thorn bush and say, man, why aren't there any figs? You can't look at a false disciple and say, gee, why am I not seeing the fruit of the Spirit there? It's never going to come. It will never arrive. But it's deeper. Because it has everything to do with what the heart of this person or the roots of this tree are drawing on. Jesus gives us a hint as to the source of the difference. You see, in the good man who brings out good things, their heart is treasuring the good. And isn't this what Jesus told us? When asked about what the kingdom of God is like, he told a parable of a man who found a pearl of great price in a field and he sold all he had to buy the field. Jesus is teaching us, he's saying that in the kingdom of God, my, my followers, they, they see me as the treasure. Conversely, there's some who may say a lot of nice things about Jesus, but he's not their treasure. They may sit in a Bible study. They may, they may sit in a church. And if they don't treasure Christ, then we shouldn't expect to see the fruit of Christ come out of them. And he gives us a very simple test at the end, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Here's a little 
Here's a little test. Just, just ask yourself, what are some of the different ways that can characterize people's, people's speech? We sort of did this in the first service. Let's try it again. Sometimes our speech is, is marked by sarcasm. Very, 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 very sarcastic. If someone's mouth is dominated by, by sarcasm, Jesus is saying, well, that's, that is a heart full of the need to chop down, the need to try to elevate oneself by cutting another one down. Not simply being able to humbly receive something, but the need to, the need to actually hold the authority and the control to cut it down. If someone's speech is characterized by snap, judgments, outbursts, sharp, barbs, bursts of rage, what's going on in that heart? Can I suggest that's a heart that's full of fear? A heart that needs to be in control. If someone has a heart, excuse me, if someone's words are characterized by whining and complaining and, and, and just, just whinging about everything, can I tell you that that heart is a heart that's full of self? If someone's speech is characterized by constant worry, constant, constant fretting and, and, and obsessing about things beyond their control, can I tell you that that's a heart that's filled with a small God, a domesticated God, not a big, mighty, powerful, omnipotent, sovereign creator. And this one's a bit of a twist. What about the one who's always just laughing? Just got a joke. Never seems to be serious about anything. This one's a bit unexpected. Can I just suggest that that may be a heart that's full of despair? Because they've lost hope. And to actually deal with reality on a serious level is too painful. And so we have to mock it. We have to laugh. You see, even to the point of our words, what's going on on the inside will be manifest if we look closely enough. You see, someone can pretend for a while, you can put on your nice smile and your church lingo, but, but ask those who live with you, ask those who interact with you on a daily basis, say, what's coming out of my mouth? What do I sound like to you? might be a good indication of what's going on in your heart. Finally, Jesus presents two builders. So we saw with the two guides that a true disciple is distinguished by their ability to see. Uh, uh, a true disciple in the second case is distinguished by, by the outworking, the consistency between the life of Jesus and what comes out of the life of this person. And here we see the distinguishing mark of the disciple is an integrity between their professed faith and their actions, their obedience to what Jesus says, acting, putting into practice his teaching. 
false disciples, they might address Jesus correctly as Lord, but their obedience is incomplete. You can see how these sort of unfold together. In 45, Jesus says, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And then 46, he presents a scenario where someone says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Okay, Jesus says, what about the people who know my name and know my title and are ready to address me properly? What about these people? But they don't do what I say. Now, if you've just been reading Luke's gospel, it's tough to really see an instance where this has happened because the Pharisees weren't really calling him Lord. They hadn't come on board with that. In fact, only two people had called Jesus Lord so far in this gospel. One was Peter and the other was a leper. And none of them showed really any signs going against him. And here he is talking to this big crowd and again, here, Jesus, as he brings the sermon to a close, he's shifting his hearers from, from a descriptive stance of what the kingdom is like, and now he's probing them to say, are you sure you want to be a part of this kingdom? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, do not do what I say? And he's going to give us a positive illustration and a negative. And he presents two builders not two houses, but two builders. As for everyone who comes to me, hears my words, puts them into practice, I'll show you what they are like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. It could be tempting to sort of hastily construct a hut in the, in the wilderness there. I mean, if, depending on where you were, if, if, the, if the, the, the sandy topsoil was fairly dry and crusty, it could seem fairly hard. But that was entirely different from, from, from stone, from bedrock, which was beneath the surface. So Jesus says, the one who does his words is like someone who put a house on a rock, and, and that house survived the flood. It survived the torrent because it was well built. Versus this other builder who, for whom the act of digging a foundation, the, the act of actually going down deep is just... It's a bit too much trouble. It's, it, it's, it's at the end of the day not really worth it. But this person's house, when it's struck by the torrent, their house collapses and there's total destruction. Now again, in continuing this theme, here Jesus has two houses. If you look from the outside, you can look and you might not see the difference. They both look like a structure. And the, the test of the integrity of that house is really the arrival of the torrent. It's the arrival of this flood. Now I mentioned at the beginning that I believe Jesus is, is pulling language from Isaiah chapter 28, which would be very fitting because when he announced his ministry, he's quoting from Isaiah 61. But listen to what the Lord is saying in Isaiah 28. He's denouncing the rulers of his people in Samaria. And he's predicting judgment. Isaiah writes, See, the Lord has one, a person who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain. Are you catching the water imagery? In a flooding downpour, he will throw it forcefully to the ground. Later on, he will go on to describe the rulers of his people 
as people living in a beautiful city that's like a crown, but the rulers of the people are f- so intoxicated with alcohol and, and, and so, so bewildered and out to it that they are totally inept to be able to lead their people. And so when they go to give them the, the word of the Lord, they, they, they stammer and they stutter and they're not able to really articulate it clearly. And it just sounds like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, yada, yada, yada. Babbling is what it sounds like. And God's judgment upon these leaders is that he's, he's, got, he's got a storm coming. And he announces that in verse 14 to 20. Listen to what he says. Therefore, hear the, war, hear the word of the Lord. You scoffers, again, mouth, sin of the mouth, reflecting the heart. They treated God lightly in their heart. They scoff in their attitudes, in their words. You scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, you boast... This is a fantastic image. You boast we've entered into a covenant with death. Now what's been going on is the rulers of the people, they see a threat that is coming in the Assyrian Empire. And so they decide to make agreements with their pagan neighbors to support them. And they're really proud of this, this covenant, this agreement that they've made. God hears them, though, as an actuality, saying because they haven't trusted in him and they've trusted in their pagan neighbors instead, the one they've really made a covenant with is death. So here come these people running out with the document. We've entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we've made an agreement. This is their expectation. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it can't touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. In Jesus' language, we've built a house. We have a house. But God says it's built on a lie. It's built on falsehood. Listen to God's response. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. And I want you to hear the messianic imagery here. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and the water will overthrow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. In Isaiah 28, God sends a flood to expose the flimsy refuge that they've constructed for themselves on a lie. God says, I, I'm going to lay a stone, a precious cornerstone in the city of my people. And that precious cornerstone is a foundation that will keep people secure. And here comes Jesus, hundreds of years later, telling people, if you come to me, hear my words, and put them into practice, if you construct a refuge on my words, Jesus says, when the torrent comes, when the flood comes, you will be secure. But not so. So Jesus has presented these pictures 
these pictures of true and false disciples. And you see there's some way in each of these pairs, there's some way where externally the false disciple can look like the genuine thing. You know, the person who says, I know the way to go. Or the person that says, I'm a tree. Or the one that's, that's a house. But they all have a, uh, an inner fault below the surface. You see, the blind guide is crippled by pride and arrogance. They think they can see when they really can't. The tree that produces bad fruit is corrupted by idolatry. They don't really love Jesus. They don't love the good. They love what is wicked. And, and the poor builder, the builder who can't be bothered to dig a foundation, their discipleship is crippled by unbelief. They, they, they somehow live in this space where they can cognitively receive the words of Jesus, but they're not triggered into action. They're not triggered into integrity. It makes us ask, am I a true, genuine disciple? Or am I one of these foolish other ones? Now the gospel is that we were all blind, idolatrous, unbelieving people. But that Christ came, and so now that if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Jesus presents himself in these verses as the teacher. And if we are to be his students, he is willing to teach us. The good news is there's no tuition cost. You don't need to pre-qualify. You don't need to get your marks up to a certain level to be enrolled in his school. He's not going to just take you through a program and say, well, I've taken you this far. See you. I'm out of here. My job's done. He will continue to help you see. He will produce the good fruit, and he will keep you secure, and he will keep you steadfast. He's remaking you into his image. And so this is why we've been focusing so much on these habits of faith, what faith looks like practically. You could say it this way. It's living out the change that's happening inside of you. And you live that out by believing the gospel, by embracing your identity as somebody who, has, who is a disciple of Jesus, by receiving that grace, allowing that to change the way you view yourself and the way you view your world, by putting the words and teachings of Jesus actually into practice, by modeling this for the community of his believers, by posturing yourself in this world not as a servant of your own agenda or a servant of the world and its systems, but as a servant of the gospel. So that by doing all of these things, our life becomes, again, a proclamation of the gospel. And so that it's not that professing your faith isn't important. It is important, but that profession must come from an inner working of God, a spiritual rebirth.
a refashioning in the image of Christ. So as we take in the gospel, it is working, is working in us to call us, to strengthen us, so that we might respond in faith. When I was in Burke, I just craved so much. If I could just have one more conversation, if I could just, if I could just show my, my sermon <laughs> to one of my professors, if I could just spend more time with them and, and, and talk about things we didn't have time to cover in class. I just would crave, I would have loved that. And I felt sorry for myself for a little while. And sometimes it's tempting as Christians to think, well, God's given me the course material. I better go out and master it. And we forget in reality that being a disciple of Jesus is something that defines our relationship. It doesn't define simply our task. And that's why Jesus is the best teacher ever. Because he says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He doesn't say, I'm going to drop you from my class. He doesn't say, oh, that wasn't a good mark. Better send you back to the remedial school. He persists. He nurtures. He strengthens us. Let's pray. Father, would you make us like Jesus? for he is good. Lord, we want to be like him because he is our treasure. And we see in him your life and your light. Lord, help us to be discerning and wise in who we follow and who we love, Lord, and how much we trust you. Lord, would you bless us this week in your name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we uh, close our service with a benediction. <clears throat> May you go in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing his peace, resting in his finished work on the cross, Trusting that he has given you all that you need for life and godliness. May you never doubt him. And may you see his abundant joy and glory in your life. Amen.